All right, welcome back, everybody. Let's go ahead and find our places. And once again, let me just reiterate the, the Happy Mother's Day greeting to all of you ladies and um, also just mention to you that we do have a gift for you. And so after the service, um, just out in the lobby, you'll see that there'll be a table with those and feel free to take one of those. That's just a, just a way of our church being able to say we love you and appreciate you and something to remember uh, this day by as well. It is always a joy on Mother's Day because we do also combine it with presenting uh, new additions to our families and that sort of thing. That's, that's a cool thing I like that we do. And um, Of course, family is the core element of society. Um, as go the families, so go society, right? Uh, there's no huge surprise these days that there is an ever-growing level of dysfunction in families today. Um, not just divorce, multiple remarriage, people just living together without being married, with people have same-sex unions, and those unions, they're adopting children. There's issues of substance abuse that lead to physical abuse or emotional abuse of the children, and that's not even counting just plain old selfishness, where we just think of ourselves and well, it leads to a whole lot of fighting and contention in the home. Well, you know what? That's, that's our society now. That's our society because, well, those are our families in this country. And today we're taking a break from our study in 1 Corinthians. And we're just going to look at a subject that I'm going to title the functional family. The functional family. And it is functional according to the Bible, of course. That's what we want to see. God's the one who created us. God's the one who knows how. We are supposed to function, no question about it. So any return to our God-intended roles will help us enjoy the life to the fullest and allow us to have the greatest impact and influence on others in our life. We'll get into that in just a second. You have your outline in front of you. Before we do, let's just go to the Lord and pray and ask Him to be our teacher today. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are thankful, as always, for your Holy Spirit. We're thankful that he is the author of your holy book, and I just pray, God, that he would be our guide. He would be our teacher today. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. I pray that we would see things that we need to see, and I pray that each and every individual here, regardless of whatever it is they're going through, everybody has their own life of situations and circumstances, and I pray, Lord, that your word would miraculously speak to each and every heart so that they can make the appropriate application. Lord, we didn't come here just to meet with one another. We came here to meet with you. And we want to hear from you today. So we ask you to do that and anticipate the things that you will say to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, the first thing that I want us to start off looking at today is God's design for marriage. God's design for marriage. Now, this may be review for some of you, but I want to take us down a road. Certainly in the beginning, right, God created everything that he created in the first chapter of Genesis in six days. That's what we see. And after he was done... In the last verse, in verse 31, he says that everything that he made, he said it was very good. That's what he did. So he got done creating. He saw everything was very good. And among the things that he created, right, on the last day of creation, the sixth day of creation, he created man. 
In fact, if you went back and looked at verse 26, he created man in his image. And when he says man in that verse, he's not talking about only Adam, male. He's talking about mankind. He's talking about male and female. He refers to them in the plural. So he created mankind, both Adam and Eve, right? Then you fast forward just a little into Genesis chapter 2, and you get to verse number 18 where we read, And the Lord God said, It is not good, something's not good now, that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So you naturally ask the question, why is it not good for man to be alone? Well, the answer comes straight from the text. Apparently, this man needs some help to do something. I mean, what exactly is it that he needs help to do? Well, let me tell you what he doesn't need help to do. He doesn't need help to work the garden. He was put in the garden to work the garden, but that's not what he needed help to do. What he needed help to do, quite obviously, is to reproduce, okay? And so we see that purpose described for us. If you go back to chapter number 1 in Genesis, and you look in verse number 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over everything that moveth upon the earth. So mankind was intended, designed from the very beginning, man and woman to be together, to be fruitful and to multiply and then to replenish the earth. This is not anything new. This is the command given to man. The same exact reproductive command was actually given to the plants and the animals earlier in chapter number 1. For example, in chapter 1, verse 11, God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. That's for the plants, the animals, verse 21. And God created great whales and every living creature, that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the fowls multiply in the earth. So very clearly, that's God's design. He started everything off, and he desired for everything to be able to reproduce in a healthy manner after its kind. That's the way he set it up. But then you flip the page and you get into Genesis chapter 3 and we understand that sin enters the world, right? And as a result of sin entering this picture in chapter number 3, what we see is this, is that God gives curses and God's curses on sin affect man's ability to do what he was designed to do by God. In other words, God gave man something to do And as a result of blowing it and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that he was directly commanded to not eat of, there's going to be sin and there's going to be division. And as a result of that, there's going to be punishment. And the punishment came in the form of these curses that are put on the different recipients. We have one that's directed towards Satan, the serpent, one directed toward woman, and one directed toward man. So let's look at the one for man. For man, it dealt with his work. That's specifically what we see if you were to glance Back in chapter number 2 and verse number 8, God placed man in the garden. And in verse number 15, he gave him the job to dress the garden and to keep the garden. But now as a result of sin, we're going to find that that job is going to be a lot harder. So chapter number 3 of Genesis and verse number 17, it says, Unto Adam, after the sin is revealed, unto Adam he, God, said, Behold, 
uh, thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee saying thou shalt not eat of it in other words because you have sinned cursed is the ground for thy sake in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return into the ground for out of it wast thou taken for dust thou art and unto dust shalt thou return so man is going to need to continue to do the work that he was originally given to do, and that is to dress and to keep the garden. It's just going to be a lot harder now. Now when he does, this is the time of the year, right? It's the springtime. We're, we're cutting our grass a couple of times a week, and we're pulling weeds like every other day, and, well, that's the result of the curse. And while we're out there doing it, you work up a sweat, and you got to go inside, and well, that's the result of the curse. I mean, every one of these things, working the ground and keeping it and doing the things to have the plant world be able to bear fruit, right, as the husbandman, well, he still needs to do that, but it's just going to be a lot harder. Now, for the woman, it deals with childbearing. For the woman, it deals with childbearing. And so verse 16 of Genesis 3 says, And unto the woman he said... I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Look, this is real easy to figure out. Clearly, the devil's plan, in general, is to just hinder whatever God's plan is. The devil's plan is to stop God's plan. And so God had a plan, and God had man, and he put him in the garden, and he put him in the garden to work the garden. And he gave man woman because he couldn't carry out the other part of the command that was given to him. And so together they were to reproduce and they were to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with other life. And so the devil comes in and he wants to try and stop that. Well, he's not going to stop completely the idea that they can reproduce. What he can do is that he can make it significantly harder. And he brings in this issue of all the pain and the sorrow and the difficulty that comes now with physical childbirth. Well, that's a result of original sin. That's what it is. So... We should ask ourselves if indeed those are curses as a result of sin and now it's a lot harder to do is does that just mean that well we just don't do it then i mean it's way harder now maybe we just should maybe we just shouldn't do it well no of course that's not the case in fact let me just say quite frankly I, i've never really understood how a god-fearing christian couple could not desire to have children. Now, I understand that people desire children and can't have them for different physical reasons. That's a whole different story. But when a Christian couple is married, and yet they just say, nah, not interested. No, don't want kids. Uh, it'll kind of cramp my stuff. Okay, well, I've never really understood that because, well, quite frankly, I just see that as selfish, but not just selfish. I actually see that as a denial of the very reason God designed marriage. <laughs> The very reason God designed marriage has the side benefit of all the companionship. But actually, he brought the woman to the man so that they could fulfill Genesis 1, and 28, be fruitful and multiply. In fact, if you look in Genesis chapter 2, the verse that we often quote in weddings, it says, Therefore shall a man, in verse 24, a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They shall be one flesh. Now, let me just tell you something. One flesh, literally, Genesis 2.24, that's children. That's what that is. 
the two are not one flesh unless they make a child, and that one child now is one flesh that every parent knows has characteristics of each of the parents, right? Each parent has some DNA characteristic that is manifest in the life of that child. And the physical act necessary between a husband and a wife in order to make a child, that's not the fulfillment of verse 24. The fulfillment of verse 24 is actually having children. And so God's intended design for marriage is, well, that we have children. And so typically, I don't know how it is in everybody's family, but typically I've noticed the trend that if a child happens to look more like one parent, they typically act like the other one. Have you ever noticed that? If they look like the dad, they act like the mom or vice versa. Um, they're both, of, both of the parents are involved and, and have their influence in the life of that new one created being. It's a wonderful thing. So this is God's design, and it's God's design even after sin. Because even after sin, which is the entirety of the Bible story, God continues to offer promises of creating families. And he continues to talk about the blessing that it is to have children. And so, for example, in Psalm 68 and verse number 6, it says, God setteth the solitary in families. That's a blessing. If you find yourself solitary, this is the promise. God says, I set them in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in dry land. The idea is that God's going to deliver. God's going to come through. God is going to do things. Listen, families include children. Families include children. Uh, Psalm 113, verse number 9. He maketh the barren woman to keep house and to be a joyful mother of children. Praise ye the Lord. God literally steps in and does miraculous, supernatural things to take a woman who otherwise would have been barren. It's not a promise that it always happens. I understand that. The idea is simply that he will do this. And there's a list of women throughout the scriptures who were barren for a time, and then God miraculously stepped in and gave them a child. He, he does that to fulfill his purposes, because among the things that he asks of us, the purpose of marriage is to continue to reproduce. There's no question about it. Now, I lived in Europe for 14 years and learned a few things about some of the different countries there, and this may be the case in several countries. I happen to know, for example, uh, the country of Germany suffers today in a significant steady decline in their population because the, the average across the board German family is not having children as rapidly as the number of the elderly are dying off. And so the overall population of the nation is in decrease, and the heads of state are naturally concerned about the fact that their nation is dying off little by little and they actually have set up germany has set up a, a pretty generous welfare system and social assistance program for people who will have children as german citizens uh, the albanians have figured this out by the way and uh, they've, they've gone there and become citizens, and, and they, they have enough babies. They can literally survive just off of the social welfare that they get from the kids. But the German state has to do that. Why? Well, because most German families, I say most, that's not fair. There are German families, that's much more accurate, to, that, that, would, that would say, I don't, I don't take care of a kid. That's a lot of work. I'd, I, I've heard one family say this, literally. I'd rather have a dog. Okay, well, I love dogs too, you know, but 
I'd rather have a dog means it's easier to take care of. That's what it, at the end of the day, what it means is I'm ridiculously selfish. That's what it means. It means I'm not willing to put the work in. I'm not willing to put the time in. Well, what's happening? Their whole country's dying off. That's what's happening. And that's just the truth. Um, listen, don't misunderstand me, especially you ladies. If, if you hear me saying that your job is solely to produce children, absolutely not. There, there's significant evidence all through the scriptures. You can have a vibrant career if you so choose. You can, you can even work the garden. I mean, you could do whatever you, it was given to them. It's okay. It's fine. The idea is, is there is one specific purpose that was given in the, in the blessing of marriage, and that is that we be fruitful and that we multiply. That is all I'm trying to say, um, and that that should be done solely inside of a biblical marriage, of course. So why is that God's design? Why exactly did God set that up? Well, of course, the propagation of the race, but we got to go back a little bit further. So we go back to the beginning, and we go back to creation, and we go back before sin. And I want to show you in Luke chapter 3, which Luke chapter 3 is actually Luke's version of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It's that chapter that when you get to it, you typically skip and go to chapter 4. So it talks about where Jesus came from, and he was the son of this guy, who was the son of that guy, who was the son of that guy, and it works its way in Luke all the way back to Adam. Okay, and this is what's interesting, because when you get to verse 38, the very end of chapter 3, it says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam. Notice which was the son of God. Adam was the son of God. You know what that means? That means that had there not had sin entered into the picture, Adam and Eve would have had children which would have propagated sons of God. That's the thing you need to get. But that didn't happen because of sin. And if you went and fast forward into Genesis chapter 5, you'll see that when they began to have children after sin, they were no longer in God's image. They were in Adam's image. And we are all born after Adam's fallen sinful image now. But the plan, the original design and the plan has always been to propagate a race of people that will fear God, that will love God, that are literally sons of God. So all through the Old Testament, and for those of you that are Bible students, and many of you are, you know that it primarily deals with this thing called the kingdom of heaven, a literal, physical kingdom. And it, that kingdom is, is given to Israel, and Israel is to be the nation that is above all other nations. And so we get the story of Israel through the Old Testament where over and over and over again we hear of these lineages and, and these births and these names. Have you ever wondered why the Bible, the, the great spiritual book of the planet, and it is, is a book so full of names of people born and they kept track of who was born to whom and in what time and in what tribe and in what lineage. And all those things played into their inheritance and and man, all of these things are recorded because, well, God is incredibly interested in the fact that we carry out his design. But you get into the New Testament now, and the kingdom of heaven is a literal, physical, earthly kingdom in the name of God is no longer in play during the church age. It's now the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is within us, right? The two will become one when Jesus returns. The Bible, now we're dealing with spiritual sons of God, right? And so that's what it says in 1 John chapter 3. Behold, and, and, and listen, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Oh my goodness. Therefore the world knoweth us, 
knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now, right now, are we the sons of God? And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he is the very image of God. You have received him into your heart and into your life. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence inside of you. You now have restored the very image of God. You are literally born of the Spirit. Born again is where the term comes from. Into the family of God is a spiritual birth, not a physical one. And what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us we who were yet enemies and sinners against him, and he made us his children, literally his sons and his daughters. We are in his family right this very second. But you know what? It doesn't appear that we are. In other words, somebody who just gets saved physically looks exactly like they looked five minutes ago before they got saved. You don't get the Shekinah glory and the halo and the... None of that happens. It never will, by the way. But anyway, the wings. Okay, so you look the same. It doth not yet appear who we shall be. We're going to get a glorified body one day. We don't have that yet. Let me tell you something. The world mocks us Christians because they mock Jesus Christ. The world despises us. The world tries to legislate against us. The world does everything that they can do because the world is set on a course by the enemy of God, the devil. And the world does what they do, and let me just tell you something, in part because we do not yet appear like we shall appear. Can I just tell you, can I propose for you today that if the world could see us the way God sees us, and it's not because of us. If the world could see us as we are truly right now, as sons of God, well, they'd probably fall on their face to worship us, wouldn't they? Now, we'd have to say, stand up, you know, don't do that. But that's probably what they would do. I mean, the world, they're ridiculously spiritual and superstitious, are they not? They're falling down to worship all kinds of foolish stuff. I mean, if you really appeared in your full glory... I mean, it might be a little different. Well, it's not that way yet. For now, it's only a spiritual transformation. We are spiritual sons of God. It doesn't, we don't look like him yet until he comes, and then, well, then we will. So as a result, for us in the church today, go back to Genesis 1.28, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Well, that's the Great Commission. That's the Great Commission. We're to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We are to birth sons of God through evangelism and the gospel effort. And we are to disciple them and multiply that. That's what we're to do. Okay, well, you spiritualize Genesis 1.28 for the church today. Okay, but what about Genesis 2.24? I mean, Genesis 2.24 still says, well, the two should become one flesh. I mean, we're still to have children, right? Okay, well, how exactly is that all connected? Well, I'm glad you asked. We'll go to point number two. We're going to talk about God's design for parenting. Okay, well, there's no surprise, right? I mean, God's design for parenting is to teach your children that you have birthed to know God. We see this through the Old Testament and through the New. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, and lest they depart from 
the heart, from thy heart, excuse me, all the days of thy life, but teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons, especially the day that thou stoodest before the Lord thy God in Horeb, when the Lord said unto me, Gather me the people together, and I will make them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me all the days that they shall live upon the earth, and that they may teach their children. Okay, so God clearly commands Israel that the things that they're learning, their relationship now established in the book of Exodus as a nation with God, that they are to continue to propagate that down the generational line. Parents, teach your children to fear me, God says. God himself sets the example of this parental teaching scenario because he ultimately is our heavenly father, right? And he does the same for us his children. So in Deuteronomy 6, for example, it starts with verse 1. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that ye might do them in the land where you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son, thy son's sons, all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. So God teaches his sons, and he teaches his sons for their good, right? Why did he tell them to do all that? Why did he want them to obey his word? Well, it says that it may be well with you. It, it will go better for you, if you do what God says, by the way, that's true today. You know that, right? God gave us his word for our good. And if you're smart, you'll obey it because it will be better for you if you do. God did not give you his word just to be the cosmic killjoy and ruin your fun. God gave you his word to help you because he designed you and he knows how you best function. Now you have the free will to rebel against him and people exercise that will all the time, but it's not in their best interests. There's pleasure in sin, but only for a season. There's a day of reckoning coming, and you don't want to be a part of that. So he teaches his sons, and he does it for their good. We'll continue in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. So, man, we are to love the Lord. We are to fear the Lord, no doubt about it. Verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thou risest up. These words, these words fall into two categories. Fear the Lord and love the Lord. That's what they are. And God teaches his children, fear me and love me. And he tells his children, Teach your children all throughout life as you're going, standing, sitting, coming, going, in the way. As life progresses throughout the days of your life, make ways to teach your children those two main things. So that must be the same way that we're to teach our children, right? That's what we see in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse number 4. And ye fathers, by the way, that word fathers is all-encompassing for parents, actually. It's not just to the men. Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So God's design for parenting is very simple. It's an equal balance of love and discipline. That's what God's design for parenting is. You have to get it right. You, you have to do the balance. It's an equal balance of love and discipline. What did he tell Israel? Fear me and love me. What did he tell through Paul to the church? 
will bring up your children in these two areas, nurture and admonition. Because if you get out of balance, you're in trouble. You get out of balance, you risk a lot of consequences. You get out of balance, and it's really hard for the child to be able to respond appropriately as they need to, ultimately then, to the Lord, right? So let's look at those two scenarios. Love without discipline. Uh, if we're dealing with a scenario where parents are showing a lot of love, and you know, it could be a conversation for another day whether or not this imbalanced, disproportionate expression is actually loving or not. That's another conversation. But let's just say love without discipline, meaning you kind of leave the child. I love him so much, I don't want to restrain him. I mean, just leave him to himself. I, he's a wonderful little guy, and you just let him do what he wants. Well, that's unsupervised, unrestrained, uncorrected. Well, that's, that's going to be a problem. And according to the scriptures and according to history that Solomon, the wisest human being that ever lived, because God gave him enormous wisdom supernaturally. Solomon, the human author of the book of Proverbs, has quite a lot to say about this subject, you know. So the wisdom that God gives to us through Solomon, who, by the way, is the son of David, and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, also called the son of David. So the wisdom of Jesus Christ, you could say, is given to us in many references you have in front of you. We'll go through them quickly. Proverbs 29, 15, the rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Go down two verses. Verse 17, correct thy son, and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall give delight unto thy soul. This idea that you can just let your kids run free. This, this, there's a whole movement of ideology today. of They, they literally call it free-range parenting. And free-range parenting is, look, man, you know, I, I get it that sometimes we go a little crazy that, you know, the kids have to have the bicycle helmets. I didn't when I was a kid. He doesn't need one either. I mean, there's a whole lot of mentality that people say, you know, we drank from a garden hose and didn't die. Okay, okay, whatever. But this free-range parenting rolls into, you know, as long as you don't get injured, have at it, you know. And they just let them go. And I know people that actually think that that's the best thing to do with their kids. I would say the wisdom of Solomon says no. It's not the best thing to do. Uh, it brings his mother to shame. Uh, Proverbs 13, verse 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. Betimes. That's a good word, isn't it? What time is betime? <laughs> you might not know. B-time don't mean an hour later. B-time means in the moment when it happens. It means promptly. That's what it means. Uh, B-times is the idea that before, before the child forgets why you're punishing him. He needs to know what, he needs to connect that discipline with the action. That hey, remember, remember at 2 o'clock when you did that thing? No, nope. <laughs> he's eating his boogers. No, I don't remember any of that stuff, right? <laughs> it was a kid. I don't know that stuff. Can I say boogers? Okay. Proverbs 15.10, we're having fun. Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. Look, nobody likes being corrected. It's if you forsaken the way, nobody likes correction. And he that hateth reproof shall die. But man, you got to have it. It's necessary. Proverbs 19.18, chasten thy son while there is hope, and let not thy soul spare for his crying. Isn't that a challenge for parents sometimes? They get to 
really letting you know how much they hate it, and man, your heart goes out to them, you love them, and you think, gosh, this has got to be tough on them. I'll just, I'll just not, I'll just not chase them, my child anymore. I'll just stop. Well, it's dangerous. You're, you're risking having this category of imbalance where you don't have enough discipline in your life. Uh, Proverbs 22, 15, I'm only giving you so many references because the Bible gives us so many references lest you think, oh, well, that's one idea. I've got a different idea. No, the Bible is clearly repeating this over and over again. 22, 15, foolishness is bound in the heart of a child and really any parent with experience knows that's true, but the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. 23, 13, and 14, withhold not correction from the child, for if thou beatest him with the rod, he shall not die. That's good news. <laughs> now, l- I'm going to clarify this in a second because there is a different usage of the word beat today, quite frankly. Beat him with the rod, he'll deliver his soul from hell. Look, I get it. Uh, physical abuse is absolutely intolerable. And, and there is an appropriate timing and measure for these acts of chastening that are appropriate, and and you should have enough wisdom to be able to understand that. The point is ignoring it completely. So society today for sure does not like this. Society today, right, frowns on corporal punishment of children. Well, does that mean that you shouldn't do it because society says you shouldn't do it? Well, maybe you ought to be careful if you're in Walmart because somebody calls CPS, right? But the point is you need to be biblical and keep the proper balance in your family, and you don't want to get out of balance. And so just because society says no, well, where, since when has society ever affirmed God's word anyway? I mean, since when is that going to be the standard by which we make the decisions of the things that we do? We're going to follow the word of God. So, if that's, you know, society frowns on the Bible altogether. I'm not chunking the Bible, right? Don't lose the balance. Love without discipline is out of balance. Well, discipline without love is out of balance too. And, and this can be a real problem because this can be what we saw in Ephesians 6, 4, that you can provoke your children to wrath. Uh, if you're a strict disciplinarian and for whatever reason you want to give for the righteousness of standing for truth and obedience... If you're doing that with, without the commensurate level of love and nurture expressed in tangible ways that the children understand, well, you're running the risk, sir, ma'am, of provoking your child to wrath. If you compare that with the parallel passage in Colossians 3, 21, fathers, provoke not your children, in this case, to anger, lest they be discouraged And how many children grow up in families where there really isn't expressed love, but there's a strict discipline and you do what I say or else, and sadly the or else sometimes goes too far. And when those things happen, man, there's some very severe consequences in the life of those children and they're dysfunctional individuals because it's a dysfunctional family. And that's a huge problem. There needs to be this balance in our parenting strategies, right? If you love hard, then you can discipline consistently. And there's no reason why that should be a problem. Everybody's expecting me at some point to probably go to Proverbs 22.6. I don't want to disappoint, so here it is. Train up a child in the way he should go, right? And when he's old, he'll not depart from it. So, hey, parents, do the work. Do the work. 
It's work. It's hard work. It's never-ending work. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And when you think it's done, it's not done. There's always something else, and there's always more to do, and it takes a lot of time. And to take the time to sit down and explain to your child why they did what they did and remind them of standards you've already set and the Word of God and God's law, and you do all the, all this stuff takes time. If you're going to discipline properly, man, it takes time. And once you get that pattern set, I mean, you know, in our house years ago, I mean, it, it might have taken at least 30 minutes to do one round right. Well, you know, the kid always does something dumb as you're walking out the door. I mean, you're about ready to go somewhere, and then you're like, oh, man, i got to do this. Okay, so now it's going to take a half hour. And what happens is, is that people have these schedules, and they just they defer, and then they don't do the work. It's work. It is work, but we have to do it. Teach the Word of God to them and know how to answer their questions. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and pick it up where we left off in verse 20. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statues and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household, before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. You should be able to explain to your children the biblical questions that they ask you. If you're trying to raise them up and you're bringing them to church and they're hearing things and they're still very impressionable and very inquisitive and very curious and they come to you with questions, man, you need to be the one who's able to answer. And if you honestly say, well, I want to, I just don't know yet, well, then just say, man, I'm going to get that answer. I'm going to get back with you. And you go find it. Ask for help. Be discipled. Learn how. And answer their questions. But not just that. In the answer, notice this continuing on, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness, notice, if we observe to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he hath commanded us. So your explanation of biblical truth needs to also include practical application. It needs to include that, listen, this is what God has done, this is what God has said, this is what there is to know, but it's for a reason. He did that for our good, and we need to get in line with his plan, and we need to love and fear and serve him, and we need to live our lives in this manner. I mean, this is the duty of a parent. This is God's design for parenting, to prepare your kids for a lifetime of loving and serving God. You look at Psalm 127, verse number 3. It says, Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. Um, English grammar nerds, his refers to whom? The Lord. The fruit of the womb is the reward of the Lord. The Lord is rewarding you. He's rewarding you for continuing to carry out the very original designed purpose for a biblical marriage. So the children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. So are children 
of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. Some guys' quivers are bigger than others. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. The idea is this. Children are compared like unto arrows. Like unto arrows. Well, children are a reward because we're doing what he asked us to do. And if we, as God-fearing people, do what he asks us to do and we have children and we raise them properly, well, then there is a significantly higher percentage that our children will also follow the way and love the Lord and do what's right because they've had a lifetime of positive influence in their life. Of course, it's not a guarantee that it happens every time. But it's a much higher likelihood than of a child born into an atheist home fear in the Lord eventually, right? It's a much higher percentage likelihood of that. So as arrows in the hands of a mighty man, well, what do you do with an arrow? I mean, you aim them in the direction they should go, and then you launch them out and let them go serve the Lord so that they can stand on their own two feet as mature young men and women who know the Lord and know his word, and, and they then also can speak with the enemies in the gate and defend the faith and stand for the Lord and his testimonies. That's our job, is to aim and to launch our children out to further places than we could ever carry and go ourselves on our own. That's why it's so important that we have children, we raise them right, and we carry on this command that started all the way from the very beginning of creation. God's design for marriage and God's design for parenting, the last thing we'll see is God's design for ministry. Now, ministry is a huge subject in the Bible. We're only going to talk about it in the context of a functional family. So many of you are already aware of the fact that God has only three ordained institutions, as we see in the Scriptures. The first one is family, instituted in Genesis chapter 2. We saw that already. The second one is government. That was instituted in Genesis chapter 9. This is the story of Noah after he lands after the flood, and he sets up that dispensation of human government where Man is given the authority and the right to govern himself. If man shed man's blood, by man shall man's blood be required. And so man begins to govern himself in Genesis chapter 9, and then that continues on throughout history. In fact, if you're interested, you go to Romans 13 and see the powers that be are ordained of God. He's talking about human governments. And we don't have to always like or approve of or, or even see that our government leaders are godly or righteous in their stands, but yet they are who they are. And it's an ordained institution, whether you prefer the individual. And we have to honor that. So the family and the government, and lastly, the church. And, well, there's a lot of references you could go to. For your notes, I just put Matthew 16, because upon this rock, Jesus said, I will build my church. And then he begins to carry out the steps to ultimately set that in place. The idea is this. Three God-ordained institutions in the Bible. Family, government, church. Everything else, man-made to just figure out how to live the best way he knows how. So the question that comes then I have in your notes, which is more important, church or family? Now let me just say, I hear this from time to time, and generally speaking, this question is asked by people who are looking to avoid church and use their family as the excuse. Typically, that's, what, that's, that's the situation. Which is, which is more important? So they'll say things like, well, I'm not, I mean, I'm all for this church stuff. It's, it's all good, but, you know, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I mean, my kids have this and this and this going on, and, I mean, my family is just more important. I'm not losing my family 
because of the church, I'll tell you what. And, and you know, I get it. That sounds real spiritual. That sounds really good. But, I mean, is that really, is that really the attitude? I mean, is that, did God bless you with the heritage and the reward so that you would ignore him? Is that why he gave you that blessing, you think? No, of course not. Of course not. So, man, which is more important? Well, I get it that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we talk about pastoral qualifications and you should be able to lead your family well. And I know that there's plenty of pastors and leaders and they've seen their kids not always follow and not always do what's right. And why is that? Well, who knows why that is? That could be any number of reasons, right? It could be the parents did a poor job. It could be that the child is just rebellious. I mean, there's any number of reasons, but... Can I just say that the question, which is more important, church or family, is an unanswerable question. It's an unanswerable question for two main reasons. The first one is, the church is family. The church is family. And uh, it's your spiritual family. By the way, it's your literal family. Uh, Don't get confused. Just because something's spiritual doesn't mean it's not literal. It's literally your family. It's just a spiritual family. So you have a physical family, and you have a spiritual family if you're a Christian, right? And your spiritual family is your family. There's no question about it. And the fact that some of you may be sitting here and you don't see it that way just reveals your lack of understanding or your lack of faith and willingness to accept what God's Word clearly states as true. For example, Ephesians chapter 3 14 and 15, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. It it refers to this in many different ways. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him how? As a father, the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters, with all purity. Uh, We look out among us and you say, well, I don't, I don't know if I want to be a family with all these folks. Well, I don't know if they want to be a family with you either, but we are. <laughs> I mean, how many of you are born into a family that you have, well, don't raise your hands or nothing, <laughs> sisters and brothers and whatever, and, you know, they're kind of weird. And you're like, well, I didn't choose this. No, you didn't, but they're your family. That's who they are. And you don't necessarily have to eat supper with them every Sunday, but, man, you can respect and honor and love them as your family, right? I mean, you can do that. And uh, the church is a family. That's who it is. Listen, John chapter 1, do I need to remind you? Verses 12 and 13, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. We saw this already, right? Even to them that believe on his name, which were born. We were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. We're born of God. God is our heavenly father. We are brothers and sisters. We are, we are, no, never mind, sorry. Okay, so let's, Let's rephrase the question. Which is more important, church or family? Which is more important, physical family or spiritual family? Look at it that way. Okay, point number two. Because your spiritual family is your forever family. You know, it's possible that you have physical family that aren't believers in Jesus Christ. There will be a day they won't be your family anymore. Right here, this, assuming we're all born again here today, Uh, we're in it forever. We're in it forever. And we can snicker all you want about stuff. Listen, man, that's good news. This is the forever family, and the sooner you get your mind wrapped around it, the better it is for you. 
God gave us his word for our good, remember? And you know what else we see in the scriptures? And people don't hardly ever talk about this. I don't know why, but some people, hear me, will have to leave their physical families in order to serve, pursue, grow their spiritual families. Because that's what they're needing to do in order to fulfill the command of the Lord on their lives. I want you to read with me carefully. It'll come on the screen. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. Please notice. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospel's but he's going to get rewarded. He shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come, eternal life. Let's just stare at that for a second. Jesus Christ is communicating to his disciples that whatever you sacrifice for my sake, and for the gospel's sake. I'm going to give you a balancing principle in just a second. I know where some of your minds are going. I get it. Anything you sacrifice for the gospel's sake will be repaid. He will reward you up to a hundredfold. And by the way, a hundredfold is the highest. There's some 30, some 60, some 100, right? And in that list, okay, I'm going to forsake my house. Good for you, buddy. Uh, I'm going to forsake my brethren. Well, I didn't like that guy anyway. Okay, well, in the list, my wife, my children. Man, that's a hard word, isn't it? Now, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I tell you what I'm not saying. Never ditch your family and use Jesus as your excuse. Don't do that mistake. I mean, the Lord's not that dumb to fall for that one, right? I mean, people around you might be, but the Lord's not. I mean, that's not, the, that's not the way it works. And people do that. I get it. But the idea is, is that following God is so serious that if by chance your temporal family, your physical one, is such a hindrance to you from being able to fulfill God's mission in your life, well, you might need to move on. You might need to move on. I realize that this is creating questions in your mind and well, we have connection cards. You can write them if you want. We'd be happy to help you. But if somebody had to ultimately pay what I would consider to be the ultimate sacrifice in forsaking some of these things, well, guess what? It brings multiplied rewards. In other words, the Lord is aware if your heart is right and you're sincere and you're truly only doing what must be done in order to not forsake the Lord because, I mean, really, which family is more important? Church or my physical, fa well, they're both important. They're both family. Keep them both. Unless one won't let you keep the other. Let me tell you who the church won't hinder you from keeping your regular family. The church is never stepping in and saying, hey, man, you need to, you know, you need to ditch that bozo. <laughs> church doesn't do that. The church doesn't tell you disobey the laws of this government. The church doesn't do that. But sometimes you can have physical family that will try and hinder you from serving the Lord. Now, let me tell you something. It says that all these things will be returned 
you might notice that wives aren't returned. Um, you might also notice that little phrase, with persecutions. Uh, if, a, if a brother or sister said, look, man, I just need to leave some stuff behind, can you imagine the resistance that would come to him or to her in their life as society in general and maybe the extended family starts to react to that level of love and commitment to the Lord? Everything has to be done in balance. What's God's design for ministry? Well, God's design for ministry in the context of the family, right, that is, that is doing the things that he wants us to do to be fully functional and fulfilled, well, it's to follow hard after the Lord. That's what it is. In everything that you do, you follow hard after the Lord, and you let your kids see that. You let your kids see that your heart and soul and life is sold out to Jesus Christ first and foremost. You let your kids see it is not hindering your children for them to know that they are not the number one love of your life. It's, it helps them, actually. It, just like it helps your children to see that mom and dad love each other so much that we will not allow, you know, the little bundle of joy to come in between us and divide us. We will not allow children to divide our marriage. We love each other that much. And our kids should see how much love we have as a married couple so that when it's their turn to be married, they seek somebody who will love them as much as mom or dad loved mom or dad. It's the same with the Lord. They should see how hard we follow after the Lord so that there's no question in their minds that this is the life that is expected. This is normal. This is the kind of a life of being fully surrendered to the Lord. They need to see it modeled. And that's what that's all about. They need to understand that nothing is more important than that, and certainly they're not more important than that. Because that would be ridiculously selfish and blasphemous. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. We've seen God's design for marriage. We've seen God's design for parenting. And we've seen God's design for ministry. And so if we take that back to the fulfillment of God's original command in Genesis chapter 1, well, what that is, is, is that's to be fruitful and multiply and to replenish the earth. That's what that is. So marriage, parenting, ministry, fruitful, multiply, replenish. If you want to see how that's passed down to us in the church age, in the form of the Great Commission, we could say it this way. It's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's missions or church planting. That's what it is. It's to be fruitful because that's what the man and woman are to do. It's to multiply by raising your children so they'll be fruitful, right? And then it's replenishing or filling the earth. And spiritually in the kingdom of God, well, that's evangelism. New people coming to faith in Christ, discipleship, multiplying that. And then missions, taking it worldwide, replenishing the whole earth with sons of God. A family that's involved in that plan, well, that's a fully functional family, according to the Word of God, right? They're fulfilling their God-intended design and purpose. And as a result, will experience the greatest amount of joy and influence to this world and to eternity. I, I hope that today you've been reminded of something that will be a blessing and a help to you as we go forward in our marriages, in our families, with our kids, and our parenting styles, and most certainly 
just reset the focus on the priority of the Lord and his mission in every other area that we have in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, as always, come before you humbly and thankfully that you have cared enough for us to speak to our hearts through your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to the hearts of each and every one of us. 